Good morning, everybody. Can I add my welcome to that of David's and a special welcome if you're here uh, visiting us uh, as a guest of a, of a regular member here or if you're new and trying us out. Uh, we hope you enjoy your time with us and there's some great coffee served over the road uh, at the end of our time together. Uh, my name is Hills, as Dave said, I'm married to Tim and uh, we have four children and uh, have been part of this family for a long time and excited about this series that we're doing, bodybuilding, looking at building, growing the strength of this great family that we are all very privileged, I believe, to be part of um, here. Just want to say before... Um, get into the, uh, this morning's uh, material. I want to add my endorsement to Sarah and Alex's commendation of that Love That Last Marriage uh, course. Tim and I did it a few years ago, and actually, we did look at some challenging stuff that actually was really helpful and fruitful to, to look at, but we also had a real laugh. So it's good fun too, so I really want to uh, commend it to you. A number of years ago, <clears throat> a study was done on um, a group of teenagers uh, to study the effects of uh, peer pressure on young people. And although that, this is what the researchers were looking at, how were these young people going to react to peer pressure, they didn't actually tell the teenagers what they were doing. They told them that the experiment that they were about to participate in was one testing their eyesight. And so uh, there was a group of young people in a room and the participants of the study, the teenagers that were kind of being tested, were sent into this room to join this other group, one at a time. And uh, they were told that they were going to be uh, shown uh, a series of cards, and each card had three lines on it, labelled A, B and C. And they were going to be asked, they were, going to, they were told they were going to be asked the question, could you please identify the longest line and put your hand up when we point to that line? Now, the other group of people that were in the room, that were in the know on this test and, and what was being looked at, they were all told to put their hands up when the second longest line was pointed to, not the longest line. And then, of course, the researchers uh, wanted to see what happened. So, uh, first person came in, first teenager came in, and a card was held up, and uh, they pointed to line A. They pointed to line B, which was the second longest line, and the nine other guys in the room all put their hands up. They then pointed to line C, and this, the, the chap that was in the room that was being observed was confused. And so they did it again because they wanted him to, to identify which the longest line was. So they pointed to A, nobody put their hands up, pointed to line B, and the young man put his hand up when everybody else put their hands up at the second longest line. He was interviewed later to uh, sort of, you know, give a bit of feedback on what was going on, and he said this, perhaps I didn't listen properly to the instructions. I'd better do the same as everyone else, or they'll laugh at me. They must be right. And they repeated this experiment over and over again with the various teenagers that had been selected to be part of it. And each time, uh, they put their hands up along with the majority who were actually identifying the second longest line rather than the longest line they ended up saying a short line was longer than a long line because of the influence of the crowd. Rather than stand out, they went with the majority. And most of us would recognise, I'm sure, that there's huge power, isn't there, in peer pressure. Huge power in the effects of the crowd. We are massively influenced by the community around us. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says this, Walk with the wise, and you'll become wise. Associate with fools, and you'll get into trouble. 
That's Solomon who wrote the book of Proverbs, identifying the pressure of the crowd. And however strong an individual uh, we might think we are, however sort of independent and unique and everything else we think we are, we are all vulnerable to the pressure of the crowd in some kind of way. We're vulnerable to the influences of the power of the community that we're part of, our local communities, our work communities, our school parent communities, uh, our national community, the influences around us in some way, shape or form. And our vulnerability to the pressure of the crowd is part of our humanity. It's part of what makes us human. I'll let you into a little secret. On Thursday afternoon this week, I was on a speed awareness course. <laughs> it will shock some of you, knowing from some of the previous stories I've told about our cars, that any of our cars could possibly speed. <laughs> but I was on a speed awareness course with another huge bunch of people from Gloucestershire. And uh, one of the things that I discovered in four hours of learning about speeding, or why we speed, or how not to speed, I discovered that one of the many reasons that we speed is because we're influenced by other road users. And if everybody else is speeding in our lane, we will probably be speeding too. Or if everybody is speeding down the road that we're on, you know, our speed is often influenced by how else other people are driving. We're influenced by the power of the crowd around us. Tim Farron. You know, many of you will have seen, if you're keeping up with the news, has said some things recently that I wonder whether he really believes because he's been so influenced by the power and the pressure of the crowd around him. Psychologists confirm this, that there's a conformist instinct in all of us to fit in somewhere, to belong to not stand out, as it were, to be accepted according to some kind of standard, some kind of value, some kind of common morality somewhere, whether it's to do with the muscle bulk that we build up. I'm not speaking personally, obviously, you know, because of, of the, the guys and the way they look around us, whether it's the sexual behaviour that we explore because of the standards that are around us in the peer group that we mix with, whether it's the kind of car we drive, whether it's the language we use, whether it's the kind of kitchen uh, we might have fitted, whether it's the kind of school that we send our kids to, the way we parent, whatever. There's a huge pressure in all kinds of walks of life on us to conform. And we have this vulnerability to fitting in because if we don't, that kind of rejection or that judgment or the separation or whatever comes with standing out can be painful at times, can't it? It can be painful. So by its very nature, God's call to us to be holy is an interesting one, isn't it? Because to be holy means to be different. That's what holy means. When God says, I'm holy, he's basically saying, I'm different. I'm not like you. I'm not like anyone else. I'm not like anyone. Andrew reminded us last week that we're called not to live as a dual citizen, that dual citizenship is not an option for us as Christians if we're in relationship with Jesus, if we're walking with the Lord. Dual citizenship isn't an, isn't an option. God calls us to be holy, to be different. I mean, Jesus stood out, didn't he? Jesus was different to everyone around him. You know, everybody wanted to condemn the woman who committed adultery, and Jesus refused to join them and uh, forgave her. Nobody would touch the lepers because they thought they would be contaminated. Jesus touched the people that other people wouldn't go near. 
Jesus refused to use his power for his own ends when all of those around him were trying to sort of get him into a position and to bring about this kind of political revolution that many of them had thought that the kingdom would mean. Jesus was different in all ways. And if he's making us like himself and he's calling us to be holy and making us holy as we go with him, by, you know, that call is a call to be different, to stand out, to be like him. Which means if we're different, we won't fit in. We won't be like the people that we spend our weeks with. It means we'll get noticed. It means that we'll stand out. It means that we will be different, whether it's refute. Um, the fact that we refuse to engage in the gossip in the office or at the school gate or wherever, whether we refuse to engage in the sexual behaviour that you know, the people around us are engaging with, whether it means pinning our colours to the mast and declaring our faith amongst cynics, whether it means that we hang out with the out crowd instead of the in crowd, where the people you know, that we want respect from, those people are hanging out with whether it means we're believing for a miracle when everyone else has given, uh, has given up believing for one. Being called to be holy is a call to stand out, to be different, not for different sake, but because God is making us more like him. So we're tracking on with our series this morning from 1 Peter, and uh, we're going to be digging into this letter that, remember, was written by one of Jesus' closest friends. Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. And he's written this letter to various churches across the Roman Empire. And he's writing to bunches of Christians that have been scattered across the Roman Empire. And what we're going to talk about this morning, what Peter's going to kind of, what God's going to speak to us about this morning through the words of Peter, is the kind of connection that we have with each other. The kind of connection that we have with each other. Because Peter makes it perfectly clear. If we're going to be holy, if we're going to stand out, if we're going to be distinctive, if we're going to be different so that we can make the difference that we've been called to make as followers of Jesus, to live the lives that he's called us to live, to become fully the people that we've been made to be, we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. We were not made to be able to do it on our own, so we're not meant to do it on our own. We were made to be closely connected, weren't we, to God, and we were made to be closely connected to one another. We were made for relationship with the Father and relationship with his family. God is growing his family, and because he made us that way, we will never flourish, we will never thrive in the way that God has made us to thrive without the right kind of close connection with God and with his family. Psalm 92 says this, planted in the house of the Lord, they, that's God's people, will flourish in the courts of our God. That's where we'll flourish, when we're planted, connected with God's family. Peter talks about the house of the Lord in this letter that we've been looking at in 1 chapter 2, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, and he says this, as you come to Jesus... You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's kind of Peter's way of saying the same thing. And the psalmist says that we'll flourish in the course of the Lord. Peter says we're being built like living stones into a spiritual house. And when he, when he says living stones, he's describing you and me. It's not kind of my favourite metaphor, a living stone. 
It's not one that kind of really gets my juices flowing and inspires me. You know, turn to the person next to you and say, you're a living stone, but you don't look like one. So God's intention, if he's building us as living stones, and um, I discovered it for those of you that like interesting little facts, that living stones as opposed to dead stones, that were stones that when a stone cutter tapped them, they made a particular noise, which meant they could be shaped and moulded and sort of chipped away at so that they could be fitted together into the structure that the stone cutters were wanting to put them. Dead stones had you know, no use to them, so they weren't used. So what Peter's saying here is that God is building us together. So if you're a living stone and I'm a living stone, what it means is he's positioning you and wants you to, be remain, to remain positioned next to, squashed in between, on top of, underneath other believers. Doesn't sound very comfortable, does it? <laughs> Doesn't sound very comfortable, but that's where God wants us because that's where we'll thrive. That's where we're most protected. That's where we're most encouraged. That's where we're most fed. That's where we're most inspired. That's where we can grow. And so God is positioning us, if we're walking with him, into places where we're surrounded in one sense and sometimes uncomfortably and doing life alongside other believers. Close community. And that, you know, I think that's a real challenge to us, isn't it? Always. Because we live in this age that idolizes independence. You know, me and my own. I can do church at home with my podcast and, you know, praying for my teddies and ministering to my pets. And, you know, I've got my worship music and I can just turn up here and there when I feel like it. Peter's saying, no. God's building you into a spiritual house, a home where God lives, where God's presence is manifest. Yes, he lives within us, but he also loves to manifest his presence when his people are gathered. And the enemy knows this. The enemy knows that this is where we're most safe, most protected, most inspired, most fed, most encouraged, where we're most going to thrive. And so he spends his time trying to separate us, trying to divide us, trying to cause us to sort of move apart, to separate us from God, to separate us from each other. You know, have you noticed that? He's always after relationship, wrecking relationships. You know, not generally in one great sort of explosion, but little by little, so that we drift apart. You know, we see it so often in marriages, don't we? And in family relationships, it's very rarely a sort of overnight thing. But it's the slow drip by drip movement. A little bit of division, a little bit of disagreement, a little bit of drifting, and we become separate. And then eventually we become isolated. And when we're isolated, we do stupid things, don't we? And we make stupid choices. And... Uh, we're getting a mess. And God has made us to belong to each other. So let's get into today's passage, 1 Peter 4. It's going to come up on the screens. You might uh, want to look at it on your Bibles if you prefer a different version. Here we are. We're in chapter 4 of Peter. We're not uh, tracking through this book verse by verse. We're picking out each week uh, some of its most key, significant, important themes. So this is the passage for today, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 14. And, and he's addressing here the key to connection, the key to being staying and remaining lodged in God's family. So, the end of all things is near, he says. It's quite a sobering little phrase, isn't it? The end of all things is near. Just as a sideline, I wonder if that's how we live. 
you know, believing actually that God could return, that Jesus could come back any day, and therefore the way we live our lives, you know, we're meant to be living them in the light of that truth. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all else, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So Peter's saying here, in this fairly simple, fairly straightforward, fairly you know, uncontroversial passage, the key to staying connected, the key to staying placed, to staying lodged in between, on top of, underneath each other, in God's family, like that living stone, is not attending a celebration once a week, although that is a good thing. The key isn't to listen to some good podcasts, some great teaching, although that's really important too. He's not even saying that the key to staying lodged, you know, in that place of of connectedness that's going to protect you and enable you to thrive is having some great Christian friendships, although great Christian friendships are really important and really matter. He's saying, above all else, above all else, the top priority, if you remember nothing else from my letter, the most important thing is this, love each other deeply. Love each other deeply. And the reason I say he's not saying just have some great Christian friendships is that the word he uses for love there is the kind of love that expects nothing in return. So what he's saying in this passage that we're just going to go on to look at briefly is not do this for your friends, do this for the kind of people you like, do this for the kind of people that you would choose, do this for the kind of people that, you'd impre- that you want to impress. He's using that word agape, which is basically loving people who are going to give you nothing back. Loving people, giving without any conditions. That's what unconditional love is, isn't it? Giving with no conditions, with no expectations of any kind of return. And Jesus says the same kind of thing, doesn't he, in the Sermon of the Mount? You know, what good is it if you just love your friends? You know, they're going to be friends back or whatever. So what Peter's talking about here is loving each other deeply, those people who are not our closest friends. Those people who are not the people that we would necessarily choose to hang out with all the time. And he very helpfully and very specifically and very practically spells out what this kind of love looks like. Because God's love always looks like something, doesn't it? It's not a feeling, it's not a kind of theory, it's not abstract, it's not a sort of, you know, warm fuzzy. It looks like something. God's love has teeth, doesn't it? He came down from heaven and he chose the cross for you and me that we could be reconciled to the Father. And the kind of love he invites us into and the kind of love he asks us to love with has teeth. It looks like something. And Peter goes on to spell out in this little passage what this loving each other looks like. So here we go. I'm just going to pick these three things up briefly. And you might want to see this as a little health check this morning. 
as we go through them. And ask yourself, well, if I was going to go out for a coffee with Peter to the new Costa in the Lloyds Bank uh, after this service, I wonder how I would chat to him about these three particular measures that he's sort of applying here to our lives about how well we're loving each other deeply, how well we're doing at creating and being part of community. So the first thing he says, and I'm going to do them in, in the opposite order to, to uh, how, how Peter has listed them. He says, serve each other, doesn't he? Use whatever gifts you have to serve each other. Now, we say this, you know, here often, you know, what are your gifts? Do you know what your gifts are? You know, we've all been given gifts, haven't we? God is a generous giver. He gives us gifts of grace. As you sit here this morning, as we're gathered together, do you know what your gifts are? Do you know what gifts God has given you? If I was to send around a piece of paper and say, write your name and then write down the gifts that God has given you, would you know what to write alongside your name? Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? I know some of you in uh, life groups have used certain um, fantastic uh, tools that we've got to help you identify uh, your gifts. Do you know what they are? Are you asking for new ones? God says that we're to eagerly desire them. Do you know what you're good at? Do you know what you have in your hands that strengthens and encourages and builds up other members of God's family? Do you know what they are? When I was, uh, when my kids were younger, I've got four of them, so I used to spend a huge proportion of my time taking my children to parties. And uh, as you will know, when you go to a party, particularly a kid's party, you have to take a present. So I was the one that would go shopping and uh, buy the present and I would give it to my child and they'd sit in the back of the car under strict instructions not to open the present because the gift was not for them. It was uh, for the person whose party they were going to. And most of the time, uh, the gift managed to arrive successfully. The gifts that God has given you and me, they're not for us. They're not for us. He hasn't given you your gift for you. He's given you your gifts for other people in this room and in this family and actually beyond, but people, Peter's talking to the family. He's given you your gifts for the benefit of other people. And he says, use them to serve others. That's why you have them. Yesterday, Tim and I spent the day in Oxford um, at a conference and uh, there was some, uh, it, it, was a, it was a fantastic conference, lots of different teaching and input, but there was a huge team of uh, young people from Glasgow in Scotland and from London who had come to bring their gifts of prophecy to bless the people uh, that were there at the conference. And so you could make appointments to go and sit with them and uh, get your phone out and they sort of reeled off these incredible prophetic words that were the most phenomenal blessing to us uh, as we spent a bit of time with those people. They'd given up a Saturday to use their gifts to build and strengthen and encourage the body. And we were on the receiving end of that and we were phenomenal. We are phenomenally grateful to God for the gifts that he gave them that they used to serve us yesterday. We've all got gifts. Do you know what they are? And are you using them to bless God's family? Because the more you use them, the more you will grow. Others will be blessed, but you will grow. And actually, it's in serving, in putting our gifts to use, that we discover our significance. You haven't got them just to bless your friends and your family. You've got them to bless others. Jesus says it's more blessed to give and receive. So, health check question for you. Who are you blessing with your gifts? Who's on the receiving end 
of your gifts? Are you part of a team? Being part of a team here is a great place to use them. It's not the only place and it's not the most important place. But who's on the receiving end of your gifts? Your friends or people who won't bless you back? Or are your gifts sitting on a shelf somewhere, a bit like some of those Christmas presents that we go, and we unwrap them, and we think that's great, and then life moves on, and we sort of tidy up the place where we unwrap the gifts and stick them on a shelf, and actually maybe they're still there, collecting a bit of dust. What are your gifts? Are you using them to serve others? Loving, loving deeply looks like serving. Number two, as I said, Peter's given us three really practical things here. Number two, be hospitable, he says. Serve others with your gifts and be hospitable. And again, he's using a command here. He's not making a suggestion. Do you know what? Next month, if you've got nothing to do on the bank holiday, be hospitable. He's not saying that. He's saying, be hospitable. And it's to all his readers, to all the people in the churches across Rome, not just the women. You know, this encouragement to be hospitable is to everybody. Loving deeply, it looks like serving and it looks like hospitality. I wonder how you respond to that. I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that word hospitality. I wonder whether it's something you associate yourself with. Or I wonder whether you associate that word hospitality with the kind of pictures of, of tables with all that incredible stuff on and all that amazing food on that we see, you know, in magazines or on TV adverts in the middle of a Saturday evening programme when you've had your supper and it makes you feel hungry again, if you're me. There are some people in this church we know that have the most incredible gift of hospitality and they can fling open their, owns and, uh, their homes and put on a feast and uh, make it look like it's totally easy, easy and they sort of did it in five minutes. And they bring people like me out in a sweat because that's not my you know, gift. And I admire and I stand in awe of people who have a gift of hospitality. You know, you bless me with it, you're amazing. But do you know what? Peter's not talking to the people who've got the gift of hospitality. He's saying, be hospitable. It's a bit like the... the you know, God has given the, the church evangelists. We know that. But we're all called to share our faith. We're all called to be witnesses. So Peter says, be hospitable. Has anyone in here ever watched Come Dine With Me? Anyone ever seen that? It's quite funny. It's a group of four people. They do this kind of serial dinner parties. And they go, they go to one person's house one night and this person has to put on a feast and arrange some entertainment and then the other three go to the bedroom and vote to the cameras on what the food was like or they vote in their taxi on the way home. And then the next night they go to someone else's house and they all vote on that person. I don't know whether hospitality you know, brings up that kind of impression to you in your mind. Some kind of entertainment, something you have to put on that other people are going to come and judge you for and hold up a number you know, internally and rate you on how you've done. That's not what the gift of, that's not what being hospitable is about. Being hospitable is about opening our homes and welcoming people in. Again, not just our best mates, the people we love to hang out with, but God's children. It's just about opening our home. There's something really precious, isn't there, about being invited into somebody else's home. It's so much more personal than going to a restaurant or, you know, going somewhere else. There's something personal about home because it's an extension of who we are. 
God's saying, if you've got a home, whether you rent one or whether you have bought one, whether it's tiny, whether it's massive, if you've got a tea bag, you know, or a jar of coffee, be hospitable. It doesn't have to be a three-course meal. It doesn't have to be, you know, a meal. Just welcome people into your home and be hospitable. So, little health check question. When did you last welcome some of your non-friends? And by that I mean, you know, the people that are your close friendship circle. When did you last welcome those kind of people into your home? Just because you wanted to bless them because they belong to the family of God. Remember, that's the kind of love Peter's talking about. I sometimes daydream, actually. I'm sure you know that's about me. You can, some of you sort of catch me in a bit of a trance. I'm a bit of a daydreamer. I sometimes think, wouldn't it be really cool to identify certain Sundays of the year and call them Super Sundays and for every member of the family? Well, it wouldn't work because some of us would have to go to other people's houses. But, you know, for us all to be involved in being hospitable to each other and having people around that we wouldn't normally or we don't really know just because, you know, God tells us, this is how I want you to live as my family. So Peter says, serve each other with your gifts, be hospitable, and then last one, forgive. Now I know he doesn't use this word specifically, but it's implicit in this phrase, love one another deeply. He uses a similar phrase in the first chapter of the book where he talks about loving one another from the heart. And then he goes on to say, doesn't he, because love covers a multitude of sins, Now, Peter isn't saying, I want you to love each other with a blind love that completely ignores, you know, the stuff that you do that hurts each other, the stuff that you get wrong, the mistakes that you make, whether they're deliberate or whether they're not deliberate. He's not saying, I want you to be blind to sin. That would be completely inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament teaching. Peter isn't encouraging us to love each other deeply with a blind love. He's encouraging us to love each other deeply with a big love that's big enough to cope with the stuff that we do that wounds each other, the stuff that we do that puts us off each other, the stuff that we do that if we leave it there and don't do anything with it, it's going to drive us apart. It's going to separate us because it's going to make me want to walk the other way because actually this is just too tricky and I, you know, I find life difficult with you and I, I've been hurt with, by you and so I'm just going to avoid you. That's the pathway, isn't it, of division to separation to isolation. And the love that Peter's calling us to is a love that's big enough, that's large enough to forgive, to forgive, to wrestle with the stuff uh, that you know, has the potential to push us apart. And I wonder if when Peter uses this word deep, love each other deeply, and then he says in, in the first chapter, love each other from the heart, I wonder if he's remembering actually back to when Jesus was telling them the story of the unforgiving, unmerciful servant, when Jesus said, I want you to forgive each other from the heart the real kind of forgiveness, the real kind of love that costs something, but it's powerful because it does. Loving deeply looks like forgiving. It looks like a commitment to going to God with the irritation, with the judgment, with the feelings, with the resentment, with the pain, whatever it is, whatever's got stuck in your heart and being committed to dealing with it because we've been called to love each other deeply. Somebody once told John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, I could never forgive that person. And Wesley just said to them, 
Well, I hope you never sin then. Because actually, we're encouraged to forgive each other in the Lord's Prayer by Jesus, aren't we? If we're going to be forgiven. And I wonder sometimes when we're battling with God and wrestling with him and wondering why we're not hearing him or why we're not experiencing his love in the way that we're crying out for. I wonder if sometimes it's because we've got stuck on this forgiveness thing. And actually, if we're not careful, it's what the enemy wants to use to separate us and pull us apart from each other. So, last health check question here. Are there people in God's family in an ongoing way that you find yourself needing to forgive? If not, in all Christian love, I would like to suggest to you that maybe it's not because you've been so refined in the fire of God that you never need to forgive anyone. Jesus said that we'd need to forgive, didn't he? 70 times 7, over and over and over and over again. So if you're not needing to forgive people on a fairly regular basis, I want to suggest to you or ask the question, well, how closely are you doing life with other people in God's family? How closely are you rubbing up against the other stones that God is saying to you, love them deeply? I think maybe there might be something for us to look at there. So God wants us to thrive He wants us to thrive. It's his heart for his kids. We say it here so often. He wants us to flourish. He's made you and he's made me to be part of a community that will accept you, that will accept us, that will fight for us, that will believe in us, that will contend for us, that will encourage us, that will lift us up when we're down, that will notice our needs, that will include us, that will love us. But God doesn't say, join it. He says, be it. Be that community. Be those stones. I've loved you. I've loved you with a love that has teeth. I've loved you with a love that looks like something. And I want you to be a people who love each other, who love each other with teeth, with a big love, with a large love that the world can see. A love that forgives a love that is hospitable, a love that serves. And this way, the whole world will know that you're my followers, you're my disciples. And what does Peter say at the end of this passage? And God will get the glory.